Now, last week we looked at maybe, maybe the greatest miracle we see, where Jesus uh, is in the country, uh, out there, and he's, and he's ministering, and, and word has built. He's got followers. Uh, life change is happening, and, and, he's, and he's away from Jerusalem, and there's a message sent to him, a message from this family who he loves deeply. It's these two sisters, Mary and Martha. They send a message to Jesus, and they say, listen, our brother is sick. Now, uh, what we find out is Lazarus, their, their brother, Ultimately, he dies. Jesus, out of his love, and if you're wondering how this makes sense, listen to the sermon last week, out of his love for them, he delays. And he doesn't go back until there's been four days. Four days have passed. Jesus comes there, and uh, everybody's mourning, and there's professional mourners, and, and, and they're all around, and Jesus asks to see the body. We, we, we see Jesus uh, share uh, how he wept, we see the humanity of Jesus and how he wept over Lazarus. And then ultimately, we see him command, not ask, command Lazarus to come out of that tomb. And Lazarus comes out. He's all wrapped up and nasty. And he walks out and Jesus says, unwrap him. And you just imagine being there. Right? You imagine you're a mourn, you're someone mourning Lazarus. Maybe you knew him, or maybe it was just your profession and you're just there doing your job. And all of a sudden, you witness this. You've heard of the power of the sky. You've heard that Jesus can do things that no one else can do. But now you see this. He has just brought someone back to life. So, what's the response? Well, let's look. In John chapter 11, verses 45, we'll look at 45 through 48 first. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, as we would think would be a natural response, it says what? Many that were there believed. They were confronted with a reality they didn't even know existed. They, they didn't know there was even a power like that. And so they see it and they go, this is undeniably the work of God. Jesus is who he says he is. And they believe. Okay, so we, so we see a large group believes. But then uh, we see uh, another group. Another group who they were there, they witnessed the exact same thing. And yet they still choose to willingly not believe in Jesus. Not only do they not believe, but they go and they actually tell the Pharisees about what Jesus had done. They tell on him. And they say, did you hear what Jesus did now? You know, it, it, when, I, when I read this part of scripture, it proves to me Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 19 through 31, Jesus shares this parable this short story. And in this, in this parable, he, as, as he's sharing it, and, and he's talking about wealth in general and that danger, but what uh, he, he says is this story about this rich man and this poor guy. The poor guy is outside of this rich man's gate. 
And he's there, he sits there, he actually has all these sores. It says in scripture that dogs would come and, and, and lick that up, which is just disgusting. And he's just hoping for the crumbs from this rich guy's table. Like, that's it, that's all he wants. And Jesus tells the story, and then he describes how, how both of these individuals died. And so the one that was rich, that was living life up to the fullest, uh, he goes to Hades, which uh, is the place before being sentenced to hell. And then the other uh, goes to the presence of God, and the, the poor man is there, and he's with Abraham as Jesus is telling the story. Now, the rich guy who's been sentenced, who's in Hades, he's there, and, and he can see, and he says, hey, Father Abraham, can you send Lazarus, who's the, who's the poor guy, no relation to the Lazarus we're talking about here, can you send him down to just cool my tongue? I am, I am miserable, uh, this is awful, and, and Abraham responds in this story as Jesus is telling it, and he says, listen, there is a, a, a gap here that has been designed to keep you from coming over here and to keep him from going to where you are. And, and, and so the rich man says, okay, well, Abraham, I have five brothers. They're still alive. Will you please send Lazarus to them to warn them about where I'm at so that, they, so that they don't end up here like me? And Abraham responds, listen, they have Moses. They have the prophets. They have everything they need. And then in Luke chapter 16, verses 30 through 31, the rich man responds. It says, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, they're so hard-hearted. If they're, it like, they're hardened to the point where literally if someone comes back to life, they still won't believe. And when you just hear that story, you go, there's nobody like that. But then all of a sudden, we get to this section in John, and we see that as truth. To where people could witness someone being resurrected and still be so hard-hearted in disbelief that they say no. No, I'm not believing that. And so, so what's tough about this is the reality. You know, some of us, we pray for people and we're like, man, if they just saw this or, or if this event happened or if they just heard that sermon or saw that miracle, then they would believe. And, and what's so tough is the reality from this uh, scripture is that there is no amount of evidence for some people for them to believe. And that's tough. But, but we see that the Pharisees find out about Jesus, what he's done, and, 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 and it's undeniable. And so the Pharisees call on a meeting with the other religious leaders, the religious leaders making up the Sanhedrin, which is 71 of them. And it's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And then there was a high priest. And they essentially had all the power, the, the judicial power uh, to, to live, to rule and reign under Rome in the nation of Israel. They had incredible political and spiritual power. And as they come together, there's only one agenda to the minutes for the meeting. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? Now, now, interesting enough, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who are coming together here, they don't like each other. 
In fact, one, the Sadducees, they love what Rome's done because their life has gotten cush and, and it's, it's awesome. They are wealthy. They have power. They've been given authority. And then you have the Pharisees who are in opposition to Rome uh, and, and, and they theologically have disagreements as well to the afterlife, resurrection, to angels. So there's differences there, but they're able to push those aside simply out of a common hate for Jesus. And so they come together here, and what we see is they finally admit that he's doing miracles. They finally admit, like, listen, his popularity's out of control, his power's out of control, we can't deny that he's doing these miracles. We can't deny Lazarus is alive, walking around, he was clearly dead, what are we going to do about this? Now, I I think what's natural for us is, Man, how in the world can they refuse to ask what these signs point to, right? How can they continue? Like, like um, some of you have seen incredible billboards, right? I don't know if there's any around here that I just don't, can't think of them off the top of my head. If you have a billboard, I'm sure it's great. But when you see certain billboards and you're driving, some are so incredible and, they, and captivating that you almost wreck. You're just like, whoa, what is that? What is that about? And sometimes there's billboards strategically placed right after each other, pointing to the same thing. And by the second one, you're going, okay, what is this, right? They've seen sign after sign of Jesus and they're still not talking about what it's pointing to. They're not asking, is he good or not? What are they responding to? They're responding to the threat of Jesus, to their position, to their authority. Now, how are they able to still be blinded? Why can't they see this? Well, it wasn't because of a lack of information. We actually see in John chapter nine, Jesus says, your blindness is due to the sin in your life. They were blinded by their sin. Now, what's difficult about this is these are considered the most spiritual, godly men alive. That's who these guys are, right? They're the ones that everybody looked to for spiritual advice, for confirmation if something's from God. They're the ones that people were like, man, look at how much they know. Uh, look at how they dress. All of these things, they were those people. And, and, and so the, the thing that, that we see here is all of this religion and biblical knowledge, yet they're unable to see the glory of Jesus, even after someone resurrects from the dead. And and and. and it just blows my mind because how do you think they opened that meeting? How do you think they opened it? In prayer. God, we seek you for wisdom as we try to understand what we need to do to Jesus. Give us wisdom. We need to get rid of Jesus. Help us. What's the best way to do that? How do you even do that? How do you get to the point where that's a prayer and you can come together under God, and have this conversation. You guys, and we've said this before during, as we've gone through the book of John, you can be religious, but you can still be lost. You can know scripture and still be ignorant of its truth. You can say, you can do all these right things, all these biblical things, but you can still have a heart that hasn't been transformed by the power of Jesus. 
Sin will blind you to the realities of God. It will blind you to the truth of who God is. It will blind you from seeing what God's doing. You know, we, we talk about um, the destructive nature of sin. We talk about how sin can ruin relationships, how it can ruin your family, your occupation. It can ruin so many things in your life. Um, but one of the things we don't talk about enough is its blinding effect on your life. How, how it causes you to not be able to see God working. It causes you to not see the realities of God, the direction of God, what he's doing. You're, you're unable to see it because the sin just blinds that. And not only does it hinder your ability to see that, but here's the other thing about uh, the blindness of sin. It blinds you to the reality of your own condition. You stop being able to see where you're at. Not only are you unable to see God working, but you slowly go down this road to where you can't even see how far gone you are. You can't see it in yourself anymore. See, their primary concern was what? Maintaining their control, their position, their influence. Jesus threatened all of that. They literally say, if people continue to believe that he's the Messiah, and they will, because he keeps doing all these powerful things, if this keeps happening, Rome is going to sweep in and take away our position. He's going to take away the temple, the temple which represented their position, their spiritual authority. Rome's going to wipe that out, and, it's going to, and Rome's going to wipe out the nation, all of that leadership, all of that wealth, uh, that influence, that freedom is gone. See, Rome, when they would conquer a nation, they would give that nation, uh, they would give them some ability to still govern themselves. Now, it was still ultimately under Rome, and they would be taxed and everything else, but they would give authority over to leaders of those nations. That was the Sanhedrin here. And so Jesus threatened this. Passover was approaching all of these people are, are flooding into Jerusalem. It's going to be packed out with these huge crowds. And man, if he does one more miracle, it is going to create an uprising and Rome will not allow that. So what do we do? And their concern is not for the people. Let's not get that twisted. They're focused on maintaining their position, their authority, their power. Guys, Empty religion, and when I say empty religion, religion where Jesus is not the king. Empty religion is always revealed by a person's focus. That's when you have empty religion. Because if someone's following Jesus, what's their focus going to be on? Open oh, man. Every Sunday school answer. Come on, people. It's 10 o'clock. You got some sleep. Even the 8.15 was like, oh, Jesus. Like, come on. Okay? That wasn't a trick question. If you're a Jesus follower, your focus is on Jesus. Then, then who's, who's after that? So my focus, if I'm a Jesus follower, is on Jesus. Next, it's who? Other people. Then lastly, who's the focus? Eh, yes, yes. He's all the above, too. Me, right? 
If I'm a Jesus follower, what's the road I'm going down? Well, one, he is first and foremost, so I'm going to follow him. Second is out of that relationship, he's going to call me to think and to love and to care about other people before myself. So that's the progression if I'm a Jesus follower. Empty religion is focused on me. See, Empty religion, it has its name. Why? Because Jesus isn't there anymore. So you have to replace him. So who do we naturally replace him with? Ourselves. Because ultimately, that's always our struggle, right? We continually struggle with replacing Jesus with ourselves. So when my religion starts to become empty, it's a natural progression of, well, he's not there anymore. I kind of like how I lead. I kind of like how I think. I tend to agree with myself. I'm going to put me there. And that's what happens. And what's the result of that? What's the result of that? It becomes about my efforts. It becomes about my good works. It becomes focused on my blessings, the blessings I want to have. So I change the narrative to get those. And then the safety, the comfort that I want to live with. So now this religion is bringing about my desired outcome. And that's how you get to the place where they're at. And how how is this seen? This is seen when you start to see this inside of you or in someone else, we start to see it when you begin to evaluate spiritual truths, spiritualities by how you'll be affected. If that's your first thought, is how is this going to affect me? You're into religion. You're not into following Jesus. That's the first sign. Their concern wasn't whether Jesus was right or good, but how his actions affected them. Guys, when our decisions aren't based on God's word, but on how they'll affect our own comfort and our convenience, we are acting just like the Sanhedrin. And ultimately, you see them and us, if we're down this road, it's ultimately deciding to make a decision from a place of fear. It's fear. That's the root of this. See, it was their fear of a loss of influence that pushed them to disobey God's will. I mean, do you, do you realize how much like, like, we're a lot like the Sanhedrin. When I was studying this, I was like, because what? It, it was their fear of loss of influence, right? It, we, and, 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 and I start looking at this fear and, and fear driving my decisions, uh, how I interact, how I lead, how I respond to God. You guys, I make so many decisions out of fear. Oh, I hate it. And when you think about our lives, what we struggle with, we struggle massively in making decisions out of fear. When you get right down to it, and I know we don't like to talk about it, and we'll, we'll sometimes give it a different name, but guys, that's what, that's what this points to. See, when we think about jobs, a lot of us end up making a decision about a job out of fear. We think about moving. Do I move here? Do I do this? Do I do that? Man, Eugene, people moving all the time. How are we making that decision? Is it out of fear? How, how, how do we move? How, where is that coming from? Calling, my calling. Am I making that out of a, am I not gonna do that calling because of fear? 
Or am I going to go forward with that out of fear? And, and what this really speaks to as well is it's not just these decisions, but, but when we think about what we desire, we don't want people to think that we're different, do we? If we get right down to it. Like, like we don't want to cause hostility. Like, it's very rare, very rare that I meet someone and go, yep, you enjoy hostility. Now, there's some of you out there, but normally, no. I don't see that, right? So I know that's not us. I, I hear this though. Man, I wanna share my faith with them. I want to share my faith with them, but it's gonna ruin our friendship. It'll ruin our friendship. You don't understand. We have a great relationship. If I share about the hope that's within me, it's gonna ruin that. It's gonna make work awkward, Steve. Work will be so awkward if I, if I talk about this. I live with them. So I can't run away if this doesn't go well. They're a roommate. I'm married to them, right? Like, like, and those are the things we think about. And, and, and like, it's not just, do I share my faith? It's, do I stand up for what's right, right? Do I, like, do I actually stand up for what is right? Because if I do, you don't understand. They're not gonna invite me out anymore. They're not gonna wanna hang around me. I love my friendships. And, and, and if I stand up for what's right, I know that they're gonna kick me out of that friend group. They're gonna kick me out of that group text. All these things are gonna happen. And Steve, I have FOMO. Now, when the first person told me that, I literally said, what? I was like, what is that? Who is FOMO? Fear of missing out. And I went, oh yeah, that's a problem. A lot of you social media warriors, why are you on there? Fear missing out. And this will drive people. This will, this will literally bring about fear. Uh, it will show us and reveal a fear that we have, a fear that is not in alignment with God's will for us. And so, and so we see, uh, ultimately, when we look at all of these things, it leads us to what? It leads us to being silent about our faith, and it causes us to live in a state of comfort in our faith and fight for that. Now, listen, we shouldn't go looking for persecution, okay? I'm not saying let's all create our signs and come stand with me, okay? That's not what I'm inviting you to. Like, I'm not saying, hey, let's go look for some persecution. Let's go find some conflict. But you guys, the fact that we live so free of any opposition, shouldn't that cause us to at least consider Shouldn't that cause us to consider that, that literally I have friends who are in opposition to everything I'm gonna preach today and we're great friends and they don't see any difference in me and them? That shouldn't cause some alarms to go off, right? Like, like there should be some tension there, some healthy tension. God calls me by faith to live for him and it's going to push me out of my fear, it's going to push me out of that comfort. We see in verses 49 through 53, as they continue on, it says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So the high priest, he sees all of his colleagues and they can't make, they can't, they can't come to a conclusion. And so he steps up and he lights them up a little bit for being indecisive. And then he says, listen, there's two outcomes. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. You pick. And he says, it is way better that Jesus should die for the nation than the nation should perish. Now, what he reveals here is another reality of religion. Religion that is self-centered and fear-motivated it will waver based on the circumstances because it's not rooted in an unchanging God. Hebrews 13.8 is very clear. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, and, and so when I start to waver, uh, when I, 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 I start to make these decisions from this place of, of, of fear, um, from this place of just like um, giving authority to the circumstances versus God's word, I start to move and I start to waver because ultimately it's about me. It's not about an unchanging God. I am very aware about how changing I am. Amen. I'm all over the place. Now, I try not to project that, but internally with God, I know he's like, Steve, you're a mess. We all are. We all are swayed. We all have these emotions and feelings and thoughts, and, and we all have these thoughts. God, you should do this. You shouldn't do that. This is how this needs to look. This is how I want it to look. Um, God, this is how I want you to lead me. And we, and we take that, but, but the danger is we will start to make these decisions not off of God's word who is unchanging, but we start to make it off of our own perception. And what is that gonna entail? Ultimately, it's gonna be based upon what benefits me. What I think will keep me in God's favor. And ultimately, it reveals that my view of religion is something that gives me the best route that I want for my life. It's no longer based upon this unchanging God, but an all the time changing me. And guys, what's the result of this road as we slowly drift down it? The end result is we become so blind that we then actually spiritually rationalize sin. Man, that is a scary thought. You guys, they have just spiritually rationalized premeditated murder. Do you understand that? They have spiritually rationalized before God in God's will to kill Jesus. That is a scary thought that, that you could get to that point. The footnote here uh, is that we read is that Caiaphas didn't say this on his own accord. Now, when we read he didn't uh, say this on his own accord, it doesn't mean he was a puppet and that he didn't have any control 
over what was coming out of his mouth. No, he was responsible for his own words, but God planned Caiaphas's words to serve his purpose. See, they held greater meaning than what Caiaphas had planned for them to mean. His intentions were evil with the words that he spoke, but God had already ordained the death of Jesus. God had already said, this is what's going to happen. He had already made it clear, this is the plan for Jesus. And and Peter speaks to this in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, so so listen, he says, yes, this was all done in accordance to God's plan. So Caiaphas is just speaking to the plan and purposes that God has already set in motion. Jesus' death wasn't accidental. It fulfilled his plan. Caiaphas prophesied that Jesus was going to die on behalf of the nation. These words are are what? They're politically motivated, right? They're political, but but he spoke prophetically. We see that in 1 Peter 2.24, it speaks to, once again, what Caiaphas says, but the truth of what Caiaphas says. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It says, by his wounds, you have been healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. So what we see here is one of the greatest truths. It's incredible. God sovereignly turned his wicked words into truth. Guys, this is just an incredible reality with the power of God. I want to read to you a few verses that, uh, that speak to this, that really moved me even this week as I studied this. And in Psalm 76.10, it says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. I want you to just think about that for a second. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. And then he says, The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. So the wrath of man, the wrath, opposition to God, opposition to to what God is is doing, what he's working, that's going to actually end up in praise. And then whatever's left over from that wrath, like a victor who has just taken out the enemy and grabbed their sword and put it on his belt, he's going to put that wrath, whatever's left, put it on his belt, and he's going to wear it. I love it. And then in Proverbs 19.21, it says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans. Many, many are the things that, 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 that humans will come up with, uh, that, that they'll say, this is what's going to happen. This is what I want to happen. This is what I think of this person. This is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to do. But ultimately, the plans of the Lord are going to supersede anything. And then lastly, in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. When we think of the the evil people, right? The who's who of the evil people in the Bible, right up there at the top, Herod, Pontius Pilate, right? Doesn't get much worse than that. And we literally see that they were placed 
to do, it says, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They didn't stand a chance. Their will, their evil, that didn't stand a chance. You guys, people can choose their words. They can choose to hate. But God's will will be accomplished. And he'll even use evil people, evil words, evil wills, evil desires, and he will take that and still use it for his ultimate greatest good, his own glory. Is that not amazing? How in the world? While Caiaphas thought only in terms of Israel, Jesus' death was gonna be much broader. It's gonna be much greater. It wasn't only for the nation, but it says the children of God who are scattered abroad. And, and, and from a, like a purely Jewish standpoint, uh, these are the children of God who uh, were outside of Palestine living. But we also know in a wider sense that it refers to the salvation of the Gentiles. Jesus' death was going to save all of these people and ultimately bring them all together as one people under him. And after Caiaphas says these words, the Sanhedrin approves of his proposal to execute Jesus. And it says from that day on, they planned to kill Jesus. As a result of this, Jesus no longer walked publicly among the Jews. He went away into the country, into a city called Ephraim, where he stayed with the disciples because it wasn't time yet for him to die. Jesus wasn't going to allow himself to be taken before that appointed time. And then we see in verses 55 through 57, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So as required by law, before the Passover, people from the surrounding countryside would come in and they would purify themselves. And so Jerusalem is already full of people. There's people coming and, and there's energy and excitement. And what are people talking about? They're talking about Jesus. And they're asking the question, would he dare enter into this city? Would he dare come in here knowing that there's a warrant out for his arrest. And so as we, as we think about just the whole progression here and, and, and how they ended up in a place like this, I think, I think it brings us to a few questions that we have to consider this morning. And the first one is this. Are we making decisions that are comfort and fear-based or faith-based? How are we making the decisions we're making? Is it driven by my comfort? Or ultimately, is it driven from a place of fear? Or is it all about God? Is it all about following Jesus? And everything else is gonna be everything else. The next question, are we spiritually justifying actions or decisions in our minds and in our hearts in order to feel right or to feel like we're 
we're good? Have we gotten to the point where we are spiritually justifying actions and decisions that aren't in alignment with who God is or his will? And how do you answer that question? Well, if your decisions aren't anchored in our unchanging God, you're wandering from his will. And what ultimately does this say? You've replaced his truth and his desires for yours. Guys, when we start down this road of spiritually justifying why we're choosing to do what we're doing, and we continue down this road, and we're driving it, we're, we're pushing the narrative, uh, the, the, the end result that we want, what, what happens, and this is what's so dangerous, okay? What happens is that actually hijacks my prayers. My prayers go to this desired outcome. So even when I'm praying, just as the Sanhedrin, even when I'm praying, I'm only hearing what I want. This, this, this plays out in when you read scripture. They knew scripture way better than you and I. And, 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 and even in scripture, you're reading and hearing what you want because God's will is no longer the desired outcome. Now, you may say it is, and, and you may keep reading and going, well, I read, I read scripture, all this, but the takeaway is far from God. You're going to receive and respond to the narrative that you want from scripture. Ultimately, you're going to hear in sermons what you want. And you're going to build out the narrative to give you your desired outcome. That's the road that this takes you down. Guys, I hear this all the time. Someone will say, well, I'm going to do this. And I'm like, why? Well, I prayed about it. You did? Oh, yeah. What did God say? Well, he said this. And that kind of goes against what he said there, though. Ah, but that's okay. He's God. Steve, I, I, I know this is what I should do. Like, I read this. You read it. Do you know that God is unchanging? Do you know that he's never going to deny himself? He's never gonna call you to do something that's in conflict with who he is. But I heard in a sermon, it was your sermon. Now, when that happens, I just, I'm just... Like sometimes I just drop. You have no idea how many times I go home and I'll talk to my wife and go, what did I say? Because I did not think I said that. Man, some of you, you'll listen to me and you'll go, oh, mm, 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 mm. there it is. There it is. Yes. I don't know what else he said. In fact, I was sleeping. But that, that's what I needed. Now, when you say that's what I needed, most of the time what you're communicating is that's what I wanted. Guys, that's what happens, and that's the journey. And ultimately, we see the danger. We see how slippery this slope is because ultimately it leads the people who are considered the most godly to be able to spiritualize premeditated murder. Now, I'm not saying you're gonna wake up one day with your spouse and talk about killing someone. I am saying you will be shocked at the road it will take you down and what you'll start to spiritually justify, and it will be a wake of destruction. 
You guys, do it God's way. Trust him. He is unchanging for a reason. It works. He works. And, and, and how do I know? Well, 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 once again, at the very end of this, what, what, what did he do with, with Caiaphas, who was just evil? What did he do with those words? Well, he took those words to prophesy about his perfect plan. You guys, here's the takeaway today. Here's, here's my last word of encouragement, challenge, whatever you want to label it. Don't allow someone's evil words that have been spoken to you, that have been said over you. Uh, don't allow someone's evil deeds that have been done to you, um, that, that, that someone has gone out of their way to make your life worse. Don't allow that to derail your life because God can actually use that evil for his greatest good to where ultimately it will even bring about his glory. And I don't say that flippantly. I know some of the stories, you guys. I know some of the words that have been said to some of you, and it, it angers me to my core because that is evil. What has been said to some of you is evil. And I know some of you are holding on to it. Some of you, you can't get that phrase. You can't get what was said out of your mind. Some of you are holding on to something that was said to you when you were a child and it rocked you so much, you don't feel like you can get over that thought. You don't feel like you can get over that line. For some of you, it's what's been done to you. And I don't sit here and say that flippantly either because I know some of the things that have been done to some of you that are watching online or in this room are awful. They're tragic. I can't even imagine that level of evil. And I'm not sitting here saying, oh, I can totally relate because I can't. All I know is we all have a decision how we're gonna move forward. And by the authority of scripture, he says, I can take that wrath. I can take those words. I can take those deeds and I can ultimately bring it about for my greatest good. There is absolutely nothing that's ever been done in humanity that's worse than nailing Jesus to the cross and look what happened. And so by that authority, I can tell you, you're not done. I can tell you that that doesn't have to be the defining word, phrase, deed for your life. There's more. Amen? Cling to him, you guys. Let's pray.